0: Why am I giving it? Well, there's a reason. I called it Military Ethics, Ancient and Modern. And there are two inspirations behind this lecture which very much come together. The first of those is the experience for many years at St Anne's of teaching Virgil's Aeneid, the greatest work of Latin literature, to my students. And in particular, in our final tutorial, when we discuss the extremely controversial ending to the poem, which we will look at in a moment, Aeneas' slaying of the Latin warrior Ternus. My attempt to make them think about the ways in which one might interpret that death problematically through looking at it according to the terms of the ancient philosophical sect known as Stoicism, which was, I think, comfortably the most influential at Rome in the time of Virgil. And very often, the students might actually feel that so systematic an application of a philosophical system to the interpretation of a literary text somehow was unreal. It took them out of the human realities of warfare. But that issue became increasingly pressing when I started to teach students who were studying Greek and Latin, studying Virgil's and at Oxford University, at a time at which, in fact, our own nation was at war. At a time when whatever we thought about the validity or otherwise, justifiability or otherwise, of the campaigns in which our nation was engaged, we had, I think, to be committed to the idea of our own armed forces observing a genuinely ethically admirable approach to the tasks that we were laying upon them. And also at a time when we looked at the tactics, the behaviour and some of the, the actions of our own armed forces and those with whom they were allied, and in some cases might have felt that what was happening was troubling, or that some of the accounts that were given of what was happening were themselves morally lazy. So at that point, it seemed to me it became increasingly important to talk to my students about this 2,000-year-old literary text and what was happening at the end of it in specifically philosophical terms. The other thing that inspired this talk was the publication in 2005 of a rather wonderful book. And I have referred you to that book at the back of the handout, along with various other works, some of which are more and some of which are less relevant to this topic, but all of which are unified by the fact that I love them dearly. Um, Now, that work is called Stoic Warriors. And its author is Professor Nancy Sherman who is a professor of ethics at Georgetown University in Washington. And as you'll be aware, Georgetown University is just in, outside Washington, D.C., and one of its great strengths is indeed its foreign service programme. So it has a record of training the American State Department elite over the years. But what happened to Nancy Sherman was that she was brought into very much as a non-military liberal outsider, she was brought into the US Naval Academy at Annapolis. Initially, in order to advise on their response to a scandal that had engulfed Annapolis to do with cheating by trainees, students, in an engineering exam. But latterly... She was brought in as their first distinguished visiting professor of ethics. And so what she then did was to... Two things, really. One was to take trainee American naval officers who had previously had access to courses on leadership but not, to ac- not access to courses on ethics, and to take those trainee officers through a course on some of the great systems of ancient and modern ethical thought. At the same time, she also started to converse with those who were engaged more broadly in their training as military officers. And after that, in fact, to conduct a series of interviews with current and serving British and American military personnel. And what came out of her experience is twofold. The first half of this was that when she taught these military personnel about ethics. The one philosophical system, more than any other, which left them with the feeling that it spoke to their concerns, their preoccupations, where they felt that they had come home, was in fact ancient Stoicism. So this originally Hellenistic Greek philosophical school, tremendously important at Rome, with the Roman elite, still had the power to address the concerns of military personnel in the modern world and indeed felt more contemporary to them than many another that they were looking at. The second thing that came of this was that as she began to interview some of the people who taught them or some other military personnel who had found themselves in the acutely stressful situations in which we put our soldiers when we send them out to fight she became increasingly aware of the intense moral seriousness with with which the people she spoke to had gone about their tasks, whether training or actually fighting. And the degree to which, in fact, the ways in which they thought about their work and the lessons that they were trying to give to their pupils, their trainees, again reflected the preoccupations of ancient Stoicism. And this is the origin of Stoic warriors. I think she then calls it the ancient origins of the military mind. And I would recommend it to you very, very strongly as a work that can not only set out for you some of the basic tenets of Stoicism, but also interweaves that with fascinating and very, very moving interviews with people who have actually served in the armed forces. Now, often... When I talk to people about these issues, particularly when I talk to school children about these issues, I, in fact, confirm that when I was their age, 17, 18, the last thing I would possibly have wanted to do would have been to serve in the armed forces. It was something of which I had very little knowledge, as I felt, or enthusiasm. So, of course, needless to say, I have never served. At the same time, however, my dear father, who paid his way through university at a time of great family hardship, the University of Edmonton, by serving in the Canadian military throughout his summers, and who very nearly ended up being sent to Korea, My father, I should say, is about my own height and uh, does not really look like a killing machine. Uh, He nevertheless had retained from his periods of military service a great respect for that experience and for the people he'd worked with, served with. And however ostentatiously I might express disregard for the military at that time of my life, nevertheless, he had left me with this underlying sense that people who serve are aware of the immense seriousness of what they're doing. And in a very basic sense, one of the things that I think comes out of Nancy Sherman's book, but also comes out of what I learned from him, is that when the state, when the army puts a gun in your hand, In a very, very radical sense, they turn you into a moral agent. That then the decisions that you make are decisions about the life and death of other people, the consequences for their families, their states, and you have to know how to operate. You have to know how to actually conduct yourselves. And years and years later, when my father had become a professor of law at the London School of Economics... He was really the only person in the faculty who was there to supervise the doctoral work of a very remarkable graduate student, a man called Colonel Andrew Solis, who was an American-Vietnam veteran and who was himself actually writing a doctorate on the legal responses to the My Lai Massacre and some of the other terrible things that happened during the Vietnam War. And I know that their relationship was a relationship of very great mutual respect. So I think back on that a little bit as well when I consider these issues. So those are my prolegomena. Let us now look to begin with at the final scene of the Aeneid. Uh, for those of you who are classicists, this is going to be one of the most familiar scenes of all and I can only apologise for taking you back through it. For those of you who are not, it's one of the great scenes in ancient literature at the end of one of the great works. At the beginning of the seventh book of the Aeneid, Aeneas and the Trojans have landed on the shores of Latium in Italy. After an initially friendly reception from the native Latin Italian peoples, all hell has broken loose when it is suggested that Aeneas should be awarded the hand in marriage of Lavinia, the daughter of the native king, Latinus. All hell breaks loose because, although this now seems to be the proper fulfilment of an oracle, it also involves the breaking off of Lavinia's prior engagement and betrothal to the native warrior, Turnus. And neither Turnus, nor Lavinia's mother, Amata, nor the goddess Juno, who hates the Trojans, and stirs up the natives to the best of her ability. None of, this, none of these people accept easily the decision that, in fact, Aeneas should come to Italy or marry Lavinia. So a terrible war breaks out which is partly a war of conquest between the incoming Trojans and the native Italian populations, but which also, for other reasons, becomes Aeneas's own intervention into a pre-existing civil struggle between different native populations within Italy. And that war breaks out drastically, particularly in the 9th, 10th, and 11th, and 12th books of the poem. Crucially for Aeneas, in book 10 of the poem, Turnus slays Pallas, who is the son of the Arcadian king Evander, settled on the future site of Rome. Pallas, whom Evander had given to Aeneas for his protection and guidance, and with whom Aeneas seems to have a particularly close bond. So when Turnus kills Pallas and strips his body of his armour, Aeneas responds in Book 10 with a total loss of emotional self-control, cuts a swathe through the native population, and ends up by taking eight native sons, four from one, four from another, alive, in order to sacrifice them at the funeral of Pallas. And this, for various reasons, is a particularly terrible and terrifying action. The war continues. By the eleventh book, middle of the eleventh book, it is clear to the Latins who are under increasing pressure that they're going to lose, and they therefore leap at the offer made by Turnus to engage in single combat against Aeneas. And they leap at it rather cruelly, I think, because they think that he will be defeated and that that's the only way to end the war. And so, the beginning of the twelfth book has the Latins turning their eyes to Turnus, as if to say, "Actually, now it's time to keep your promise. It's time to fight Aeneas." A single combat is set up. It is then thrown into confusion by the actions of Turnus's divine sister, Turna, and the war starts out all over again with Aeneas becoming increasingly passionate and angry. Finally, with Aeneas chasing him around the walls of the city of Latinus, and with a fury, or fury sent down from the sky above by Jupiter, and flapping its wings terrifyingly in front of him, Ternus knows that his time is up. He is wounded by Aeneas... And he falls to his knee. And it is that point that we have reached in the first passage. Now, before I begin, uh, about a year ago, nine months ago, I took this lecture to, or version of this lecture, to rugby school. Uh, For various reasons, I was, at that time, in the position of being guardian of the principal's West Highland White Terrier. a dog almost as dear to me as he is himself. (laughs) Maybe more. That dog... No, Tim, sorry. Um, That dog uh, behaved beautifully in the course of all of my lecture, except when I got to the point where I had to read out the last 20 lines (laughs) of Aeneid 12. When, clearly conscious of the intense pathos of this scene... (laughs) Millie began to howl (laughs) and uh, had to be carried out into the corridor outside where she was restored to a state of tranquillity. So I'm going to give you this in Latin and then we'll go on to the uh, the English translation. Il umilis suplex, oculos dextramque precantem, protendens equidem, meruinec de precorinquit, utere sorte tua, Miseri te siqua parentis tangre cura potest, oro fuit et tibitalis, anchises genitor, downi miserere senectae. Et mei seu corpus spoliatum lumine mavis, redime is. We kissed at victum tendere palmas, auson videre, tu ast lavinia conjunx. Ulturi terius ne statit acre in armis, aine volvens oculos, dextramque repressit, et iam iamque magis cunctamptem flectere sermo, coiperat, infelix, umeroucua paruit so alto, baltius et notis, fulserunt kingula bullis, pallantis pueri. Quictumquem vulnire turnus, strauerat at cumeris, inimicuin sing negerebat, Iloculis postquam saeui monumenta Dolores, ex suias quausit, furisa census et ira, terribilis, tuninc, spoliisunt dutem eorum, e ripiadem ehi. Palastoc vulnere palas, imulat et poenam, sanguine sumit. Octicens ferad verso, subpecture condit, fervidus, astili soluntur frigere membra, precum gemitu, fugit indignata sub He, humble and a suppliant, that's Turnus, stretching forth his eyes and his right hand in prayer, said, "I have indeed earned this, and do not beg you otherwise. Decide how to use your fortune. If any care for a wretched father can touch you, I beg." You too had such a father in Anchises, that you take pity on the old age of Daunus, that's a Satanus' father, and restore me alive, or if you prefer, as a corpse despoiled of the light to my family. You have won, and the Orsonians have seen me defeated, stretch forth my palms. Lavinia is your wife, Press no further in hatred. Aeneas stood, fierce in his arms, rolling his eyes and held back his right hand. And now evermore, Turnus's words had begun to sway him as he hesitated. When on top of his shoulder, he caught sight of the unhappy sword belt and its bindings shone with the familiar discs of the boy palace, whom Turnus had laid low, overcome by a mighty wound. And now he, Turnus was wearing the enemy's decoration on his shoulders. Aeneas after he had drunk down with his eyes the reminders of his savage pain and the spoils, on fire with fury and terrible in his anger, he said, Are you dressed in the spoils of my people to be snatched from me? With this wound, Pallas Pallas, sacrifices you and exacts punishment from your wicked blood. Speaking this word, seething, he buried the sword in his enemy's breast. Turnus's limbs grew slack in chill, and with a groan his life fled, complaining to the shades. What makes the ending of this poem so extremely controversial is firstly the question of why Virgil would have chosen to finish the Roman national epic with so particularly dark an ending, in which the representative of one half of the future Italian people violently slays the representative of another half. The other thing that makes it controversial is the ethical question of whether or not it is right or necessary for Aeneas to kill Turnus, And this is an ethical problem which is indeed posed already for us, some of the terms of that problem, by the poem itself within the sixth book of the poem. And this, again, is one of the most famous lines of all the Aeneid. If you look to the third page of my handout... we have a moment when Aeneas, visiting his father Anchises in the underworld, has just been shown a parade of great Romans of the future. To the reader, of course, they're great Romans of the past. And the reader will be aware, and it creeps through and shows through in many of the ways that Anchises describes these people, that these are many men who actually at different times found themselves wrestling with extremely difficult ethical problems. And in many cases, who chose the wrong, the more brutal solution. So having given us this long list of great Romans, generally in a spirit of immense pride and celebration, Anchises then addresses his son in this way. Others, he says, meaning, of course, the Greeks. Others, I do indeed believe will carve more softly-breathing bronzes and will draw living faces from marble. They will plead cases better, will mark out with a pointer the journeyings of heaven and will tell of the rising stars. You, Roman, remember to rule peoples with command. These will be your arts. To impose custom upon peace, to spare the subject and to war down the proud. i say a couple of things about these lines. The last three lines of those in particular are lines that you will see in very, very many public monuments in Italy of the fascist period. Mussolini was particularly enthusiastic about them. More importantly here, Aeneas is for the first time in this poem being called a Roman. Up till now he's been a Trojan or a Phrygian. In speech to him or by him in the whole of the first five books of the Aeneid, once has there been a reference to the Roman land, never to the city of Rome or the Roman people. So it's not as if it's a concept that's been very regularly brought out in speeches to him during the poem. Moreover, he will never, in fact, found the city of Rome. That will be done generations later by Romulus. He will simply, by his victories, make it possible for that city to be founded later on. But now, at this point, his identity is merging with the identity of all of those future Romans to come, including his Roman readers. And he is being told what he, as a Roman, needs to do. And the arts of the Roman are the arts of warfare, conquest and empire. But their obligations within that are, yes, to war down the proud, but also to impose custom on peace, in other words, to create an empire of which we can be proud, an empire which is beneficial to those who are part of it, and also to spare the conquered. And therefore, the question that arises at the end of the Aeneid is this. For certain... At various points in books 7 to 12, Turnus has been seen as one of the proud, superbus. He has been, however, quite comprehensively wore down. He has stretched forth his hand, crucial gesture, and confessed defeat. So is he now one of the subjects? Is it now Aeneas' obligation as a Roman to spare him If it is, then we have to admit that Aeneas fails. That he fails to meet his Roman duty. And this is where the the Stoicism comes into it. This is the crucial point here. How and why does he fail? Let me take you back to that passage. You'll notice two things, I hope. When Turnus stretches out his hand and pleads with Aeneas either to return him alive or dead to his father, he does so in attempt to move him to pity, okay? He uses the verb miserere, take pity on my father Downus." Bear that in mind. Aeneas, listening to this and seeing Turnus on his knees, pleading, begins to be swayed by his words. He begins to think that, yes, that is the right thing to do, when suddenly he catches sight of the sword belt that Turnus stripped from the young man Pallas, whom he slew, and which he is now wearing. And the overwhelming emotional impact of that site on Aeneas is sufficient then, not only to slay Turnus, but also to slay Turnus, claiming that he is in fact, the, that Aeneas is the embodiment of Pallas himself, and that he is t- kill, sacrificing him. And Virgil, at this point, describes Aeneas as being on fire with fury, madness, and terrible in his anger. This is crucial. What would the Stoics say about this? The Stoics, I think, would say this. That if Aeneas decided to spare Turnus out of pity, that itself would be wrong. But equally, if Aeneas decides to, to, to slay Turnus out of anger and fury, that too is wrong. Why? The reason why is this? The Stoics regard the touchstone of almost moral decision making as being the promotion of virtue, or adherence to virtue, and they regard any emotion, what they call a pathos, as being something that will overwhelm our ability to decide correctly what is virtuous. Because the Stoics believe that the world is instinct with reason. And that what we have to do is apply our reason, our our ratio, in order to make virtuous decisions. All of these emotions, they think about very, very interestingly indeed. And they make two very striking claims about them. The first of these claims, and this is one that actually moral philosophy, modern moral philosophy has come back to quite considerably, is that emotions are not things that happen to us, and emotions are not simply wild, crazy things that have nothing to do with reason. They believe that emotions are essentially judgments; that they are what they call, what people now call, cognitive. (coughs) But they further believe that what characterises all of these passions, these emotions, is that they are false judgments, erroneous judgments. So they then divide all of the great passions into four subheadings. And this will be clear, for instance, from the third item beyond on the handout. Those four subheadings, the four, let's say, generic passions, are on the one hand the present passions of pleasure and pain, and the prospective passions, on the other hand, of fear and desire. And all the other things that we might call emotions, they then represent as being subdivisions of one of those generic passions. So, for instance, let's think about pity. What they say about pity is that it's a subdivision of pain. And in particular, it is the pain that we feel at the sight of someone suffering Unnecessarily. What about anger? What they say about anger is crucial. They say that anger is a subdivision of desire. And in particular, it is the desire to take vengeance on somebody for doing wrong to us or to somebody else. And what underpins all of these, as I said, is the fact that these are incorrect judgments. So what should a Stoic do in these circumstances? And this is the bit that sometimes I find hard to explain to my students. Justified. And this is a the bit they say is a bit unreal in the world. What a Stoic needs to do, faced with, say, a turnus on his knees before him, is neither to spare him out of pity nor to kill him out of anger, but rather rationally to assess the degree of Turnus's crime and then to make a rational decision as to which punishment to apply to Turnus on a scale of reason-driven punishments from the most severe, they often talk about severity, to the most lenient, and they would then talk about clemency. So it would be perfectly all right, indeed, for Aeneas to decide, perhaps, that Ternus' crimes are such that he should, in fact, suffer the death penalty, but not to do it in the way that he does it. It would be quite all right to decide to spare Turnus, but not to do it simply out of a feeling of pity. Why does all this matter? It matters because when we put people in the line of fire, when we put them in combat situations, we put them in intensely stressful situations, but where we also equip them to do untold harm and untold wrong unless they actually act rationally and morally. And the danger, therefore, is precisely the danger of acting, in many cases, out of anger. I'm just going to quote you a bit of um, Nancy Sherman's book, where she's talking precisely about a warrior's anger. She says this, it's easy to appreciate how midshipmen or cadets might think that the proper attitude to adopt or prepare oneself and one's troops for war is a kind of warrior rage. However, with respect to the latter, marine colonels and navy captains with whom I taught often took it as precisely their mission to knock the Rambo out of their young charges. They have simply watched too many Rambo movies, one officer lamented to me. They're too ready to flare up, he complained, in the name of warrior glory. And then she adds this In the backs of some officers' minds at service academies on ROTC programmes are the careers of Lieutenant William Calley and Captain Ernest Medina, principals in the My Lai Massacre and the atrocities to which warrior rage can lead. Many of the midshipmen I taught had initially only a perfunctory grasp of the events that unfolded in My life. But on the base were a handful of Vietnam veterans, in particular Marines, who had struggled hard in Vietnam, often at great costs to their own troops, to make the distinction that Cali and Medina failed to make between combatants and non-combatants, among an enemy who often deliberately blurred the line. In their minds, as military educators, stoic abstention from warrior anger was a way to avoid another lie." The Romans knew something about this as well. Let us go back, and this is more my area, really, to have a look at how some of the historians talk about this. I'm going to start with a Greek historian, Polybius, who is a particularly fascinating source because he was a Greek prisoner of war at Rome. Well, a Greek captive at Rome. For about 16 years. So he wrote for other Greeks as an outsider about what the Roman state was like about what had made Rome able to conquer almost all of the Mediterranean world in less than in 57 years or something. So that was what fascinated him about Rome, 53 years. He saw many things to admire, but also many things to fear. In the 18th book, he quotes the great dictum, very similar to that of Anchises, of one of the leading Roman generals. For brave men, the general says, when fighting must be hard and wrathful. I think what that means is in the line of battle when you're actually fighting other combatants. Noble and great-spirited in defeat, but moderate, gentle, and kindly in victory. Again, in the 27th book, the Romans have just suffered a defeat, unusual, against the Macedonians, and they've received a Macedonian embassy. The Senate replies to the Macedonians. How? It goes like this. It was unanimously decided to give as severe a reply as possible, it being in all cases the traditional Roman custom to show themselves most imperious and severe in time of defeat and most lenient after success. And this is what... Then Polybius had something very interesting, that this is noble conduct everyone will confess, but perhaps it is open to doubt whether it is possible under certain circumstances. So it's leaving open this possibility that actually there are things that the Romans don't manage to do occasionally in times of success. And that's where the fear lies. And if we want to know what Pelobius means by that, we need to turn to a terrifying episode (laughs) from the 10th book of his histories. This episode describes the Roman capture of the Spanish colony of the Carthaginians called New Carthage. And it describes how the great Scipio Africanus acts on entering the city. When Scipio thought that a sufficient number of troops had entered, he sent most of them, as is the Roman custom, against the inhabitants of the city with the orders to kill all they encountered, sparing none, and not to start pillaging until the signal was given. They do this, I think, to inspire terror, so that when towns are taken by the Romans, one may often see not only the corpses of human beings, but dogs cut in half and the dismembered limbs of other animals. And on this occasion, such scenes were very many, owing to the numbers of those in the place. So this is another Roman custom. Note how this outsider says, they do this, I think, because. Or as is the Roman custom. And what he's describing is this. If the Romans arrive at the gates of your city, let us say they start to um, throw brands at the gatehouse. And the great chieftain, Gardamicus, comes forth and they say to him, a great chieftain, by the way, um, please surrender, because if you surrender, you may, be, um, you may enter into our fides, into our trust, and we will then treat you gently. And this is what the Romans claim is, that if the city surrenders immediately, they, uh, they will treat them well. If, on the other hand, that chieftain has a degree of pride and actually quite likes the gatehouse and the rest of the college, and doesn't want (laughs) surrender to the Romans, and makes them take the time to sack his city, all bets are off. Then you become what they call an urb's captor, a captured city. And the slaughter that erupts at the time of the capture of the city is terrible. And to Polybius, there is a purpose to this. It is there to intimidate. Soon as, and it's a tactic. As soon as you get in, kill all left, right and centre until someone blows a whistle and says start pillaging instead. And what I would add to that is that when Romans think about their own conduct, when they think about what happens precisely at the moment that a city is captured, they routinely, well routinely is pushing, but regularly, describe what happens in terms of the anger of the troops who have conducted the siege and what they do and I've given you a couple of examples of this from Livy Livy I should say draws very heavily on Polybius though he does try and clean things up a bit for the Romans so not as much sneaks through as one would like but this is his description of the siege of Syracuse in 212 Syracuse is captured the city was given over to the soldiers to plunder guards being first assigned to the houses of the men who had been inside the Roman lines. And then he adds, while many shameful examples of anger and many of greed were being given. And then he goes on to describe the killing of Archimedes. Many shameful examples of anger and of greed. Again, in Book 28, again from the Second Punic War, describing the capture of the city of Iliturgi in Spain. From there, they dashed down with a shout, in the city, into the city already captured by the Romans. It was then in truth evident that the city had been attacked out of anger and hatred, ira and odium. Terrible things follow. No one thought of taking men alive. No one thought of booty, although every place was open for plunder. They slaughtered the unarmed and the armed alike, women as well as men. Cruel anger went even so far as to slay infants. Then they threw firebrands into houses and demolished what could not be consumed by the flames. So delighted were they to destroy even the traces of the city and to blot out the memory of their enemy's abode. These are those moments when perhaps it is difficult to sustain our moral values, as Polybius said. Those shameful memories that we have to think through or repress. And a brilliant example of this then comes from the Roman philosopher and Stoic Seneca. He is narrating an episode from one of the most terrible of Rome's almost generational bouts of civil war in the first century BC, what's called the Social War. Um, Not because there were lots of parties involved, but because because Rome fought against their allies, the Soccii. And in this case, the Romans fighting against the Soccii have captured the city of Grumentum. And This is actually, the the main story he's telling here is of two slaves who value their mistress. So at the time of the capture of the city, they rush her out of the city, claiming that she's a villain and that they mean to punish her. But what they really do is hide her away until the really bad stuff has died down. Then they sneak her back into the city, and she, out of gratitude, manumits them, frees them. But what's interesting is what Seneca says about what happened when the city was captured. And these chaps, they wait outside with their city, and look, if you look at the italicised portion, until the anger of the city should settle down. donic hostilis era consideret. And then, he says, later, when the soldiers quickly glutted, it's like an appetite, returns to Roman customs... Ad mores Romanos rediet. They then, the slaves, returned to theirs, brought the mistress back in and saved her. The problem is this, and we know this now from Polybius, the mores Romani, the Roman customs he's talking about there, are the same as the Roman arts, the artes Romani, that Anchises has talked about in Book 6. They are the arts of warring down the proud and then sparing the captured, or sparing the subject peoples. The problem is that there's another set of Roman arts, of military tactics, which is precisely when you capture a city, to kill everybody in sight, instill terror, and then get on with plundering. And they are, in a sense, let us say, good Rome and bad Rome. But they're both Roman... Arts. And what the Roman general has to do, if we think through this in Stoic terms, if we think through these just in terms of what these Roman arts are, is in an incredibly pressurised situation, not only himself to think through what those Roman arts are, what the moral values are that their empire encodes, clings to, but also find a way of communicating that to his own troops. And that's what Nancy Sherman's talking about when she talks about what the colonels and marine officers, talking to their ratings, had to try and explain. And I've closed this lecture, your handout, with a famous example of precisely this attempt to communicate very similar moral lessons by a man who'd been through university to a group of squaddies who, although they probably didn't have many GCSEs to rub together between them, he nevertheless treated as being capable of receiving, thinking through, and putting into practice crucial moral instruction. And this is the speech that many of you will know from Colonel Tim Collins, leading his troops into the invasion of Iraq in 2003. We go to liberate, not to conquer. We will not only fly our flags in their country, we are entering Iraq to freer people, and the only flag which will be flown in that ancient land is their own. Show respect for them. There were some who are alive at this moment who will not be alive shortly. Those who do not wish to go on that journey, we will not send. As for the others, I expect you to rock their world. Wipe them out if that is what they choose. But if you are ferocious in battle, remember to be magnanimous in victory. Iraq is steeped in history. It is the site of the Garden of Eden, of the great flood and the birthplace of Abraham. Tread lightly there. You will see things that no man could pay to see and you will have to go a long way to find a more decent, generous and upright people than the Iraqis. You will be embarrassed by their hospitality even though they have nothing. Don't treat them as refugees for they are in their own country. Their children will be poor in years to come they will know that the light of liberation in their lives was brought by you. If there are casualties of war, then remember that that when they woke up and got dressed in the morning, they did not plan to die this day. Allow them dignity and death, bury them properly and mark their graves. It is my foremost intention to bring every single one of you out alive. But there may be people among us who will not see the end of this campaign. We will put them in their sleeping bags and send them back. There will be no time for sorrow. The enemy should be in no doubt that we are his nemesis and that we are bringing about his rightful destruction. There are many regional commanders who have stains on their souls and they are stoking the fires of hell for Saddam. He and his forces will be destroyed by this coalition for what they have done. As they die, they will know their deeds have brought them to this place. Show them no pity. It is a big step, he adds, to take another human life. It is not to be done lightly. I know of men who have taken life needlessly in other conflicts. I can assure you they live with the mark of Cain upon them. If someone surrenders to you, then remember they have that right in international law and ensure that one day they go home to their family. The ones who wish to fight, well, we aim to please. If someone surrenders to you, sorry, if you, have, if you harm the regiment or its history by over enthusiasm in killing or in cowardice, know it is your family who will suffer. You will be shunned unless your conduct is of the highest for your deeds will follow you down through history. We will bring shame on neither our uniform or our nation. Now, I do not know whether Colonel Tim Collins in his education in Northern Ireland and at Queen's University, Belfast, had access to or did not to the Roman writers and to the, the people that we've been looking at today. It's perfectly clear from his writing that he knows a fair amount about the Old Testament. But it is striking, at least, the degree to which the values that he is trying to communicate to his troops and the values that Nancy Sherman is trying to communicate to those she teaches are the same as the values that the Roman Stoics tried to communicate to their generation. And whatever we think about the rights and wrongs of the invasion of Iraq or any other nation, we must at least be glad that we have people serving us, commanding our troops, who are themselves determined to communicate those moral values to those who serve under them and to ensure that when they fight and as they fight, they do not bring shame upon us. Thank you very much.